invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you're using one of these black Bibles in the pews, that's page 948. The book of Romans is the uh, book in the New Testament that's most theological. You read up through chapter 11, and it's, it's some of the weightiest passages in the Bible. They're very complex at times. You have to read it very slow. By the time the Apostle Paul gets to the 12th chapter, he's beginning to make real practical applications of some of the doctrine that he's covered previously. And so in this section, which begins in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12... He's just got real quick, almost bullet points of several areas. Hear God's word beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What I want to do for the next few moments is focus on that phrase at the latter part of verse 12. Be constant in prayer. And so the goal I have for this sermon is that you and I will devote ourselves more to prayer beginning today. The Bible clearly says that we are called to be devoted to prayer And so that's my goal during this time. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you'd use these moments to speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This exhortation here at the latter part of verse 12 is one of several in a long chain of exhortations. It says we are to be devoted to prayer. Your version, if you've got another Bible there with you, may say be constant in prayer as this one does, the ESV, or some say be faithful in prayer. They all mean the same thing. Those are all different aspects of the same word, this word devoted. And here's how also we find it used in the New Testament in the book of Mark chapter 3. It says Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush, lest they crush him. He says they were to have a, here where Jesus was going to speak to a large crowd by a lake, And he said, have a boat behind me, have it ready that I may get into it, lest the crowd gets too packed and pushes it, crushes against us. Then I can get in the boat, go out on the water, and preach to them from there. So he had says, have the boat devoted. In other words, set apart for the purpose of allowing me to get on it. The same word is used in the New Testament to say, be devoted, be set apart, be constant in prayer. In fact, the word's used ten times in the New Testament, five times it's related to prayer, such as in Acts chapter 1. It said, These, along with were one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 2, it says of the early converts in Jerusalem, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, The Apostle Paul says to all of us, devote yourselves to prayer. It's almost word for word. 
It's the same phrase in Romans chapter 12. So we can easily say that from the New Testament, the normal Christian life, the normative Christian life, should be a life devoted to prayer. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that true of me? Is that true of you? It does not mean that you pray 24-7 all the time. Any more than you could say that a husband is devoted to his wife, but that does not mean that he is with her, talking to her, every minute of every, of every day. But being devoted to prayer does mean something different than not being devoted to prayer. And God knows what the difference is, and he will call us to account. And so my hope is that you and I would grow to be more devoted to prayer. Now, why is prayer important? What makes it possible? What even makes it possible to talk to God? Sounds like something from a science fiction novel, doesn't it? Not only that we believe there is a God, but we, that we can communicate to him, with him. Well, here's what makes it possible, briefly. God created our first four parents, Adam and Eve, and they had a spiritual life that enabled them to walk and talk with God, unlike we, we don't understand it. They loved God since they, like us, were created to do so, but something happened and they disobeyed God. And they died, not physically at that time, they died spiritually. That spiritual sense, that spiritual connection they had with God was lost. They suffered the consequences of their sin, their crime against God. But even in punishing them by moving them out of the Garden of Eden, God promised a Redeemer who would come later to pay for their sins, to reestablish that life with God. You and I are born where they ended up. And we have chosen to commit crimes against God, to sin against God with our thoughts and our words and our actions about what we do and what we don't do. And he says the payment or the wages of these is death. It's natural for us to think, well, I can just do enough good things and God will accept me. If I try hard enough with the right intentions, God will see my motives and he will accept me. But the truth is there's nothing the Bible tells us. There's nothing you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. All the good deeds in all the world will not do away with the problem that you have and I have, which is sin and death. So God, who is loving and merciful, sent Christ to substitute, to take the punishment for us. Jesus became a man. He lived a perfect life. He allowed himself to be arrested and crucified and nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for the sins of others, since he had no sin of his own. When he was on that cross, God put all of my sins on him, punished him in my place. Christ made the full payment. He died on that cross. That was the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. His body was taken down from the cross. It was laid in a tomb. A stone was put in front of the tomb, not to keep him in, but to keep robbers out. But three days later, he rose from the dead, physically arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. Before he did so, he told his followers to go into all the world and tell people that life with God is a gift. And we have to receive that gift. We must believe that Jesus was God the Son, that he was perfect, that he died for you, that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, and that God the Father put your sins on God the Son and punished him. Now you're enabled to pray. It's only because the foundation of the cross of Christ and Jesus' death in the place of sinners that enables you and me to pray, period. So why pray? Why be devoted to prayer? Three brief answers. First, the Bible tells us to be devoted to prayer. It's a point of obedience. 
You say, well, I don't feel like it. I'm lazy or I can't concentrate or it just seems like I'm wasting my time or like I'm talking to nobody. No one's there and I'm talking. I feel kind of half lunatic or something like that. Well, then fight. Preach to yourself. Don't let your sins and weaknesses dominate and rule you in this area. God says be devoted to prayer, so do all you can to do so. Second reason to pray. And that is the needs of your own life, the needs of your family, the needs of your church, the needs of other churches, the needs in our culture and in our world and for world missions desperately hang in the balance. The Apostle Paul, as he was concerned about his Jewish brethren who did not know Christ, he said, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Salvation of another person often hangs in the balance with our prayers. Third reason to pray is that when we pray, God acts. He acts. I cannot explain how this works. I've seen it many, many, many times, but I cannot explain it. Of how God is able to do so much more in a short amount of time, even a few seconds, than we are able to do in months and years and sometimes decades. I've seen this in counseling situations. I've seen this in witnessing to another person who's an unbeliever. I've seen it in planning things for ministry with our staff and with our officers where we have worked, worked diligently, sometimes for hours, days, weeks, even months. Then we prayed, boom, within a matter of moments. It's like the answer was right in front of us we had never seen. I'm not saying that God blesses laziness or that God doesn't, is, is out to spare you hard work. What I mean is that prayer can make your work a hundred times more effective and more fruitful than you doing it alone. So those are three reasons to pray. We're told to pray, to be devoted to prayer, the needs of your own life and the needs of others, and God acts when we pray. So what does it mean to be devoted or constant in prayer? It means there's a spirit of dependence that permeates everything. It means that we pray repeatedly and often. We pray at all seasons of life and times of trouble. When God, when you think of other people asking you, how are you doing? It would be insulting if you began to pour out your troubles to the other person, right? As though they really wanted to hear it. And you got into all the minutia of what irritates you about everything and everybody. God wants to hear it. He wants you to pour out his trouble, your troubles to him. We find it all through the Psalms. Here's some examples from Psalm 22. I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by men and despised by all people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me. God invites you to bring your troubles to him. Pray in times of joy. Pray in times of need. And pray without ceasing. Now, I want to share with you my experience with trying to be devoted to prayer. And I do this with, and I'm not exaggerating, with great fear and trembling. I had a sense this week of dread at this point. Here's where my dread comes from. When it comes to being devoted to prayer, I recognize I am a baby learning to crawl. I can talk about certain things in sermons when I may have years of experience and feel some degree of adequacy to talk about them. This is not one of them. So that's my personal disclaimer. And some of you are light years ahead of me. And what I'm going to say, you're going to hear, is so elementary. You're going to think, my pastor's prayer life is that? That is nothing. He is in kindergarten and you are in college. Here's a general disclaimer, though. 
We are all very different. Our schedules are different. Our body clocks are different. Our family structures are different. We are at different stages of life with different demands on our time and on our energy. We are at different levels of spiritual maturity. And what you may be doing five years from now in your prayer life, you may look back then to now and think, how in the world did I even survive doing so little? But all of us, everyone in this room, can move forward. We can press on. We can make progress. So here are my two areas of prayer that I want to point out to you. You and I need structured prayer, and we need spontaneous prayer. Those two. Now, I'm going to share with you how I go through a plan. Please don't take notes. Go to my blog, pastorchipmiller.com. I've copied it and pasted it right there. Here's what I do. This is my personal approach. I use a reading plan that's on that blog that I got from Dr. Douglas Kelly, who's a Reformed Seminary professor who has preached here a number of times. And in this, this is what I start out with. I've got a block of time, about 45 minutes, and I start by reading the Bible. This particular reading plan has a different section of the Bible to read each day of the week. So I got this big print Bible, <laughs> because my eyes have gone bad, and I start, and here's Monday. And each day of the seven days has a place. And for Monday, I'm reading in Genesis right now. Monday starts in Genesis, but it's not that way for every day of the week. Tuesday started in Joshua. Wednesday is over in Job. Thursday is the Psalms. No, that's Sunday. Thursday is Isaiah and so forth. And there are two days that you do the New Testament. You read three chapters. You read three chapters, like on the Sunday reading, it would be in the Psalms. So today, let's say, for example, I would be reading the three, the three Psalms, uh, 7, 8, and 9. It takes me about nine minutes to read that section. So I do the reading, and I keep the markers, and at the end of the reading, I take a pencil, and I mark in the Bible where I ended for that day. I like that plan because each day it's something different. And you don't get bogged down in some portion of the Bible that you're just having a hard time figuring out. So I start with that. Then I move now to a time of prayer. And my main tool in prayer is this notebook. Now, I don't like big notebooks. I like moleskins. I like things like that. I like the old daytimer notebooks. But it is an eight and a half, eleven world, folks. And prayer letters and missionary things, they all come in that size. And when you print it off the computer, so I'm stuck with this size. And I've got a big, a real fast hole puncher right there on my desk right by this. I've got daily list, prayer list, and then each day of the week. And so in the front, in my front pages, the very opening page, I have this plan for prayer that I got from Doug Kelly. It's on my blog. Cut it and paste it. Put it right there in the front. And starting here, it tells me how to use my time in prayer. Here's the way I do it. His plan is 45 minutes. I hadn't been able to get there yet. I'm at about 35. So here's, here's what I do. I start off and I have five minutes of praise. I'm following his plan. In that first five minutes, uh, the idea is to focus on God, even as Christ taught in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. The Psalms are helpful there. But what's really been helpful for me the past couple of weeks, I take the bulletin from Sunday, and I go back through, and I sing the songs. Now, the great thing I like is I get the bulletin on Thursday for this Sunday. So guess what I've been singing the past three days? Jesus paid it all. all 
I had a hard time keeping it together because I've been looking at those words all week and I see the depth of that song, which I'd never really appreciated until Michael taught us his new arrangement. And so I sing those songs, first five minutes. It takes three minutes to sing a song, so I'm usually barely through the second before my time's up. I've got a big clock I put right on the shelf. I tried the iPhone, but the screen goes off, and I find myself fiddling with the phone to keep looking. So I got the, the clock right there ticking. After five minutes, I then move to confession. And that's where I confess my sins. And as you'll read on the plan that Doug Kelly says, you Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 or Psalm 139, I'm very honest, I'm very specific, and I have my own code system. I abbreviate my sins and I write them down. I don't want to worry about what will happen if somebody finds this list. But God knows what they are, and I know what they are, and so I write these things down, and I confess sins, and I try to pray what John Calvin often prayed at the end of his sermons, Lord, help us to hate our sins enough to turn from them. Then I move into five minutes of Scripture praying. On Friday, my reading on that day was from Matthew uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6. That goes into the Sermon on the Mount. And chapter 6 deals with, with anxiety over finances and stuff like that. And I was thinking about this season in our church's life when we ask all of us to make pledges for our giving. And so I'm praying that, that back to God. I also, if I don't have a passage that stands out to me, I read Table Talk. It takes... It doesn't take five minutes. That's one day's reading right there. A table talk from Ligonier Ministries that you can get. This is for the month of October. So that's what I do. Now I'm into it for 15 minutes. Now, after that, I enter 15 minutes of intercession where I go back to my notebook and I begin to pray. And I pray, like John Piper said, in, I like concentric circles. So the middle of the circle is me. No one's going to pray for me more than me. So I pray about my own sins and my own needs. Then I expand out to the family. Now I'm up to 17 people. Now that's five children, three married, eight grandchildren. That's 17 with the immediate family, counting me and Barbara. That's not even including her mother, her side of the family, my sister, her side of the family. I'm right there. Then I go on out to include the session members. That's 22. That's 44 people since they're married. Now I'm at 44 plus the 17. Then I go on out to the diaconate. That's 21. And almost all of them are married. Now I add the staff, the program staff in our church, the other pastors and their spouses and other program staff at the church and the eight fellows that we have. I'm at 103 people right then. If I don't have a structure, there's no way I'm going to remember that. So up in the front... I have all the session names. Then I have all the names of the diaconate. And so I try to pray. I, don't, I, I probably end up about three days a week. I'd like to pray for them every day. I pray for them. I pray for them and their marriages and their wives and other things I may know about their families. Then on the other days of the week, like there's missionary, this is for Monday, missionary prayer booklet that we have at the church, different missionaries each day. This is from Operation World. This is the best handbook for praying for other countries of the world. If you don't want to buy the book, you don't have to. Go online, put Operation World, country for the day. This was from a week ago. This is Papua New Guinea. And it will give you demographics, and in two pages it will tell you how to pray for that country in the advancement of the gospel. Then I pray for staff on the next day on Wednesdays. I have staff reports, and I ask the staff to tell me who they're meeting with. 
They don't go into personal issues there. But I say, oh, there's John. He met with these five people. So I pray for those five people. Now, I'm at 103, and I hadn't prayed for any of you. So that's how I try to structure prayer. I'm up to 30 minutes. And can you imagine that 15 minutes of intercession flies by like that? But you see, I've got a, I don't have a hyperactive body. <laughs> it's hard for me to move. But I've got a hyperactive mind. And after about 30 minutes, I'm, I'm spent. That's about it. I hope to get up to an hour, but I'm not there yet because I'm a baby learning to crawl. So if you've got a prayer request you want me to pray for, give that to me in writing preferably. Email it. I'll print it out on 8 and a half and 11, and I'll go in my notebook. Y'all won't remember anything from the sermon except it's an 8 and a half 11 world, right? Now, what do I do with the family? I'm, uh, I'm going to wrap this up in a moment. Family devotions. I did not grow up in a family that had devotions, and I thought that would be very simple as a Christian. I found out it's not. I remember when Richard Pratt was here years ago, he said he talked to many people that grew up in families that had devotions. Most of them had negative memories of the experience. It was a time they were reprimanded or disciplined or somebody got mad. So he suggested keep it brief. And don't burden yourself by not being able to do it every day. So about four, five, Barbara, I don't know, four or five nights a week, we sit down at supper. I have a copy of Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. You can get it for free on the computer. I mean, it's been, there's no copyright on this thing anymore. So I've got a book. After we eat, we put Stephen. He's two rooms away because he's so loud at that time of the day. You can hear him screaming. You'd think we were abusing our child or something if you're outside. But our son gets... At that time of day, he gets real loud. So Barbara and I sit, and we eat, and then after we eat, I read the evening section of Charles Spurgeon, Morning and Evening. It's a brief devotion. takes maybe three minutes to read it. We don't discuss it. I don't try to act like I'm a teacher or anything. I read it. I grab my wife's hand. I say, then let's pray. I will pray, and normally at that time, we pray for our immediate family needs. Our daughter at college, or our son, Stephen, or one of the kids at sick, or whatever it might be. And then Barbara prays, and she is much more mature in her prayers than I am. So she prays longer than I pray. And then we finish six minutes, maybe? That's what we do. That's my attempts at trying to grow to be devoted to prayer. So if you don't do anything, husbands, if you don't pray with your wife, start small. And don't apologize. And don't worry that she's going to say, where has this been for the past 20 years? And wife, don't say that. Because husbands fear embarrassment, men do, and do not say that. At the end, just say, thank you, and pray that he'll do it again. But it's, I, I, I view keep it simple. I'm out of time. I want to talk about praying, assembling with others, but that must be for another time. But I would like to say this. This is the third sermon in a discombobulated series I've done on prayer. I think I did one about five weeks ago, then I did another one about three weeks ago, and then this is the third one. The other two sermons dealt with two parables on prayer. One dealt with expectancy in prayer, which was the neighbor who needed three loaves, that parable. The other one dealt with persistence in prayer that dealt with the widow before the unjust judge. As I thought about this, I wrote down, I really don't think that you can know in your experience anything about persistence in prayer and anything about expectancy in prayer unless you're devoted to prayer. So you have to start there. So I hope that you will take my simple example 
and this admonition from Romans chapter 12 to be devoted to prayer and start there. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're humbled in all that you desire to spend time with us. And in this room, we represent probably a million different needs and desires and experiences. And we pray that you'd give us hearts that would be more devoted to prayer beginning today. In Jesus' name, amen.